All right, some of you are getting the uh, papers from the back. Again, if we run out of those, uh, that's a good thing. But if you're a couple, you might want to share them then. Um, I want to remind you just a couple things. Some of you have missed some of these series of, of sermons. You can find them all on the church website. So you can go on the website if you'd like the copy. All of the quotes that I use in here are copied for you. Donna will be glad to make any of those hard copies that you might need. Uh, all of the quotes are also cited. Uh, so you'll, you'll know that they, where they have come from. I also want to remind you that the intent, just like when we studied the non-Christian religions, it, my intent is to quote these uh, different teachers, these different sources directly, not so much what other people say about them, but what they have actually said themselves. What we're looking at, and we, we started this last fall, we, we, it, it's called the apologetics med, uh, 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 ministry. And, and that, is, that is the what uh, the author of Jude said, that, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that has once and for all get, been given to the saints. And whether we do that on, on religious practices that, that don't claim any relationship with Christianity, or we might do them with, with those who come into the, the Christian church and have tried to warp or to change what the Bible says, it's important for us to contend earnestly for the faith. Uh, elsewhere, we're told to uh, point out the false teachings. Elsewhere, we're told to, to expose the false teachers themselves. Uh, why would we have to do this? Uh, we sh- I would say we shouldn't have to do this for, for mature Christians, but we, we have to do this for the babies. We have to do this for those who are young because some people have it in their mind that just because someone stands behind a pulpit, someone has a church, someone has a ministry, someone has a following, that that legitimizes what they say. But to be a Christian, to be a Berean-type Christian, we must examine what anybody says, and we must match it up to the Scripture. If it matches up, again, we have no problem with it. If it's contrary to the Scripture, then it needs to be exposed for what it is. It needs to be dealt with. And, and uh, we need to make sure that there are no, again, young Christians that are following these teachings that would lead to their own destruction, or a lot of harm, anyways, to their faith. The first week we talked about uh, the word faith movement and how it has corrupted Christianity and, and changed a lot of the meanings of the things we talked about. The second week we looked at their flawed definition and application of faith, what faith is all about and how it works according to the Scripture. Last week... We looked at their attack upon the very nature of God, the nature of Jesus Christ, and actually the exaltation of man and the exaltation of Satan himself. And uh, we talked about how, uh, I think the word blasphemy came up a few times last, last week as we looked at that. Now, tonight we're going to continue this and we're going to take it one step further. Because we're going to talk tonight about the atonement, the work of Christ on our part to make us right with God. And what does the Bible teach about that? And again, what do the word faith teachers speak about this? Now, wouldn't you agree that well, last week, your understanding of God is crucial. If you have a wrong understanding of God and Jesus, you've got real problems there. But also, it's not just, it's not just our understanding about who God, who God and Jesus are. It's also our understanding about what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? We've even talked about some religions that seem to have a, a right concept of who Jesus is. But when they talk about atonement, they have a very incorrect view of what the atonement is. In other words, they say, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died upon the cross, but we've got to add something else to what he did upon the cross in order to be made right with God. In other words, our own works help us earn our salvation. So they may have it right about who Jesus is, but they miss the point about what Jesus has accomplished. 
Alright? So we talked last week about the word faith teachers have, they have a, they have a, a terrible concept of who God is, who Christ is, who Satan is, and who men is, men are. And then tonight we're going to look at, at, at their understanding of the atonement. Well, let's look at a few scriptures and then at the end I'm going to come back and apply these scriptural truths so that you have a basis for your understanding. You know, someone says, what does the atonement mean? I'd like for you to be able to tell them very quickly, what does the atonement mean? Okay, so let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And here's what Paul says to us. He said, for he made him who knew no sin to, to be sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in Him. And I use this one intentionally because this is one of the key verses that, that will be used into saying that Jesus actually, you're going, to, you're going to hear it, Jesus actually turned into sin. Jesus actually turned into Satan. Jesus actually turned into the serpent upon the cross. But that's not at all what he's talking about, and we'll get to that a little bit later in our, in our passage. Now go to Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to read verses 6 through 9 with you. And he says, he says this, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, who's the him there? Jesus. The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will be decla- and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with rich, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then finally, look at John. First, excuse me, First John, the epistle of First John, verse two, uh, chapter two, and verse two. And here's what John records for us. He says, he says, uh, and he, who's the he there again? Christ, Jesus, okay. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word propitiation means payment. It means satisfaction. It means redemption. All those terms, it speaks of that, that what he did upon the cross paid the full price for the sins that you and I were guilty of. And John reminds us of that in that passage. So when you look at this, we see in the atonement, that the atonement speaks of Christ's finished work that allows you and I to be made right with God. Because the Bible teaches that because of our sin and our sin condition, we are estranged from God. John uses the word, we are at enmity with God. Okay, we were always at odds with Him, and we could not be right. And we understand, hopefully, that we could not make ourselves right. Because once we were sinners, there was no possibility or nothing in us that can make ourselves right with God from that point forward. Because nothing in us would be acceptable to God. Only that which was pure, holy, and right could possibly make us acceptable to God. And I want you to keep this in mind, what I just said to you. Because you go back to, to the first verse there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteous of God in Him. And there will be those who teach that Jesus became sin upon the cross. I'm here to tell you that if at any moment Jesus became sin upon the cross, He became, he became disqualified to die for your sin. Sin does not pay for sin. Only the righteous one pays for sin. So what does that word sin mean there? 
Well, I would say, go back to the book of Leviticus, and you'll find out exactly what he's talking about there. They had the, the goats in the instruction that was given to Moses in the book of Leviticus. And in one of the passages, what he says, he says, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take the, this goat, and this goat is sin. And what I want you to do is load down the burdens upon this goat and take the goat outside of the camp. And the picture there, again, is this goat carried the burdens of the people. It represented carrying the sins of the people away from the camp of the people. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ ultimately and eternally has done for us. He is the sin bearer. He did not turn into sin. The phrase has nothing to do with him turning into sin. He certainly did not turn into a serpent. If he turned into a serpent, Satan couldn't die for our sins. If a sinful Jesus could die for our sins, then you could die for someone else's sin. Anybody in here besides me a sinner? That would make us qualified. Unless we understand that the only qualification for the one who could die for someone else's sin and pay for someone else's sin is someone who's holy, someone who's righteous, and someone who is eternally acceptable to God. He did not turn into sin upon the cross. He did not turn into Satan on the cross. At the moment he would do such a thing as that, he would become disqualified because a sinner cannot pay for sin. Do you understand that? I hope that you do. It's crucial that we understand that. And we understand in the context of what Jesus, what God taught, told his people in the Old Testament about the one who would eventually come and be the sin bearer. Now Isaiah 53 tells us that it was not Satan who punished Jesus and that Jesus was not punished in hell by Satan, but where was he punished and who punished him? Isaiah 53. Who punished Jesus? God did. His Father did. It was God who poured out His wrath upon His Son for our sin. Jesus didn't pay off, and again, that's part of the problem with many of the They think that, that God, that Satan swindled God. We talked about that. Satan, swind, Satan tricked God through man, and now God had to come up with a plan to get it all back. So in other words, Jesus' death on the cross actually paid off Satan. And it wasn't God who punished Satan, uh, Jesus on the cross, but it was Satan. But he wasn't done on the cross. Because as you'll see, he actually drug him into hell and for three days punished Jesus in hell for our sins. There's nothing. I'm going to say it again. There is nothing anywhere in the Bible that teaches such. That even infers such. I like what Jesus said. And we'll talk about it at the end. It is Almost done. I've just got to go to hell for three days and let Satan beat up on me for a while. What do you say? It is finished. The work of redemption was done at Calvary. Hell, listen, hell is not the altar of sacrifice. Calvary is the altar of sacrifice. As we've talked about before, it is the last altar the church will ever need. There's no further sacrifice. Nothing else is required. It was done there. Our church does not have an altar. I know we say it does, but it doesn't. We have steps at the front. We have a Lord's Supper table. There's a little podium there and stuff like that. It's not an altar. The last altar the church would ever need was at Calvary. And God accepted the sacrifice that was offered there. Not only did He accept it, the propitiation of our sin, God accepted the sacrifice for our sin, but it was God who poured out His wrath upon His Son there on Calvary. Now, with those things in mind, let me break down four areas 
that the word faith teachers deal with. And you need to notice that these are, these are really in, important. We have the first one is the recreation on the cross. Word faith teachers teach that on the cross, Jesus took on the very nature of Satan. So on the cross, Jesus took on the nature of Satan. And that, by the way, they would say that he died spiritually. The Bible nowhere teaches that Jesus had to die spiritually for the sin of mankind. Nowhere. Matter of fact, every, every text or, 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 or verse that talks about Jesus as a sacrifice, it, the reason he came as a man, incarnation, was to die for our sins. That his blood could be shed for our sins. Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, it didn't have, have anything to do with spiritual death. Jesus never, listen to me, never ever died spiritually. If he did, here's what would have happened. At that moment, he would have ceased to be the eternal God that he is, and that's an impossibility. It is the incarnation of Christ. He came to take on the flesh of his own creation to go to Calvary and to shed human blood on Calvary as a sacrifice for human sin. And it was a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And it was, and it, it was paid for, not by some spiritual death, but by His precious blood that was shed for us. His sinless blood that was shed for us. But listen to what they say as they talk about His recreation upon the cross. Quoting Kenneth Hagin first, he says, Spiritual death means something more than separation from God. Spiritual death also means having Satan's nature. Jesus tasted spiritual death for every man. Nowhere, nowhere, no, nowhere in the scripture does it say that Jesus tastes spiritual death for every man. And certainly it does not say that spiritual death equates to having the nature of Satan. I'm going to throw this out to you. How many of you have ever been spiritually dead? Every one of us, right? Did you have the nature of Satan when you were spiritually dead? The answer is no. No, you didn't. You had a human nature that was separated from God because of sin. You didn't have the nature of Satan. You weren't, you weren't the spawn of Satan. You were, you were a, a, a human being that was lost in, its, in their inner sin, and you were spiritually separated from God because of that sin condition. Therefore, you needed to be, here's a term, born again. Because you were dead in your sin. But it, again, you were spiritually dead. You were separated from God. But it didn't, it didn't say anything about you, were the, you had the nature of Satan. And some would say, well, doesn't it say that, that you're a child of the devil or that you're father? It just means, it, it just means that you are like unto him in the, sen- in the sense that, that you follow his ways. That your nature leads you in that direction. It doesn't make, give you the nature. He's not... Human beings never have, do not have a satanic nature. They have a fallen human nature. Everybody got that? Here, here's why, why that's important. Now you've got to hear this. Here's why it's important. Satan can't be redeemed. The fallen angels can't be redeemed. Their nature of who they are prohibits them from ever understanding or, or, or uh, experiencing redemption. Jesus came for fallen man. And yes, we had a fallen nature, but it wasn't a satanic nature. 
And yes, it was influenced by Satan. And yes, we listened to the father of lies and we, we, were, we were open to his temptation and all those kind of things that go on because we were spiritually dead to God and separated from God. But our nature was a fallen human nature that could be redeemed. But Satan can't be redeemed. The fallen angels cannot be redeemed. Their nature is a nature that is completely and totally separated from God without any hope. So this first statement, when it, and this is incredible, it says, he, first he makes the premise that, that spiritual death means that you, have, you take on the nature of Satan. And then he goes on to say, and Jesus tasted spiritual death for everybody. So what's he saying? If spiritual death equates the nature of Satan, then certainly when he says Jesus died spiritually, what he's saying is that Jesus took on the nature of Satan. It's incredible. Can I use the word heresy? Apostate. Even blasphemy. When it comes to this. Well, let's read on. Um, you might think, I get a little bit angry when I read these things. So, they, they really bother me. And these incredible, these are, these are being taught in professing Christian churches. This is, this is terrible. Kenneth Copeland, the righteousness of God was made to be sin. Now, this is an incredible thing. Think about it. How could that be? The righteousness of God was made to be sin. He accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. And at that moment, he did, that he did so, he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That, that again, is, that's going let me grab something from every part of Scripture to try to justify what my, my bogus teaching. And it's not good teaching. That's not why he cried, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? We just explained that, didn't we? Isaiah 53 says that God did what? He poured out his wrath upon his Son upon the cross. Something Jesus had never experienced before. Think about it. Walking in perfect harmony, fellowship, relationship with God the Father from eternity past. Perfect love. Knowing no separation at all. And in that instant upon the cross, God the Father poured out the entirety of His wrath for the sin of all mankind upon His Son. He didn't cry it out because He took on the nature of Satan. Well, let's read on. I, I'm interrupted. I'm sorry. Alright, so, you don't know what, ha- you don't know what happened on the cross. And you know what? I, I want to say right there, neither do you. But, he says, why do you think Moses, upon instruction of God, raised a serpent up on the pole instead of a lamb? That used to bug me. I said, why in the world would you want to put a snake up there, the sign of Satan? Why didn't you put a lamb on that pole? And the Lord said, now this is incredible. Now he's claiming that God personally told him that this blasphemy is true. Because it was a sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross. He, Jesus said, I accepted in my own spirit, spiritual death, and the light was turned out. It's just terrible. Let's look at the third one. This one's from my favorite, Benny Hinn. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, here's what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, the serpent is a symbol of Satan. Jesus Christ knew that the only way he would stop Satan was by becoming one in nature with him. Come on. Think about it this way. Let's do this in a practical way. You know the best way to overcome certain sins in your life? Is to go do them. What do you think about that? 
You want to go? You want to stop adultery? Go do, go be an adulterer. You want to stop hating? Go hate. Come on, it's ridiculous. Yet that's exactly what he's saying about Jesus. Jesus knew that the only way that he would stop Satan was by becoming one in nature with him. You say, what did you say? And I do. You know, when Benny Hinn says something like that, what did you say? Okay, what did you say? What blasphemy is this? See, he knows it's blasphemy. But he wants to be contrary. He says, no, you hear this. He did not take my sin. He became my sin. And he just missed all of what 2 Corinthians was about. He did take your sin. He didn't become your sin. He took your sin. He's completely wrong here. Sin is the nature of hell. Sin is what made Satan. It was sin that made Satan. Jesus says, I'll be sin. I'll go to the lowest place. I'll go to the origin of it. By the way, where's the origin of sin? Is it in the lowest place? Where did the first sin take place? In heaven. In heaven. You see how goofy this is? All right, let's read on. I won't just take part of it. I'll be the totality of it. When Jesus became sin, sir, he took it from A to Z and said, no more. Think about this. He became flesh, that flesh might become like him. He became dead so that, so saying, so saying man can live. He became sin so sinner can be righteous in him. He became one with the nature of Satan so all those who had the nature of Satan can partake in the nature of God. There's three lines there of just nothing but garbage. He became what? Can someone tell me when he became death? He became sin? This is incredible. This is so contrary to biblical Christianity. It's so far from biblical Christianity. By his own testimony, he can't possibly know the Jesus of the Bible. And boy, that makes people mad. Pastor, you really believe... Are you saying that Benny Hinn is not safe? I'll go by his own words. If he believes this is true, he can't possibly know the Jesus of the Bible. It's not that broad, folks. My Jesus was never a sinner. My Jesus never became sin. My Jesus' lights never went out. My Jesus never took on the nature of Satan. And he never died spiritually. My Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on the flesh of His own creation, willingly went to the cross, received the punishment for my sin upon the cross, shed His blood and died physically on that cross, was buried and three days later came, uh, arose from the dead. That's my Jesus. But my Jesus is the sinless sacrifice of God. He is the righteous, perfect, holy one. And He's the only one that would be acceptable to the Father on His sacrifice. So we have the first point here. That's the recreation of the, on the cross of Christ. Now, if that's not enough, let's, let's take it a step further because we move not to, again, as I said earlier, that the price being paid upon the cross, but actually that redemption happening in hell. Not on the cross, but in hell. We have Frederick Casey Price that begins this, that redemption in hell. Word, faith, teachers teach that the punishment for sin was not on the cross, but in hell. Price says this. Do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on a cross? Anybody think that? I do. Anybody else think that? Do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on a cross? Someone in that church should have stood up right there and said, Yes, brother, it was. 
Okay? Here's what he said. If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. Can anybody be this theologically shallow and have thousands of people follow him? Apparently so. No, the punishment, listen to him, the punishment was to go to hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. Nowhere, 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 nowhere in the Bible is this true. Nowhere. And I know some of you probably know the Apostles' Creed. But I'm going to tell you, the Apostles' Creed isn't Scripture either. They're smarter than you. They're wiser than you. Well, apparently not. If they're teaching these things. Satan and all the demons of hell thought that they had thought that they had him bound and they threw a net over Jesus and dragged him down to the very pit of hell itself to serve our sentence. So the punishment for our sin, our sentence, Jesus paid in hell. Okay? Let's read on. Joel Osteen. It's interesting, and I put this quote in here because this was an Easter message sermon from Joel Olstein. It was televised all over the world. It was a big thing that they put on there. And it gives a scenario that gives you the indication that he holds to this kind of, same kind of theology. And I know a lot of you think Joel Osteen hung the moon, but he didn't. God did. So uh, let's just read what he says. He says here, The Bible indicates that for three days Jesus went into the very depths of hell. No, it doesn't. Right into the enemy's own territory. And he did battle with Satan face to face. Where? According to Old Satan. In hell. Right? Can you imagine what a showdown that was? It was good versus evil, right versus wrong, holiness versus filth. Here are the two most powerful forces in the universe that have come together to do battle for the first time in history. Do you remember what Paul said? i got to stop here. I gotta, Paul said that on the cross he made a public spectacle of the enemy and he disarmed them on the cross. Alright, let's read on. Come, have come together to do battle in the first time in history. But thank God the Bible says that Satan was no match for our champion. This was no contest. Could someone find that verse for me? Could, could someone find that verse that even infers that for me? Jesus crushed Satan's head with his foot. He bruised his head. Now, where did he get any statement like that? Well, of course, he got it out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Completely out of context. has nothing to do with God, Jesus fighting Satan in hell, but he bruised his head. And he once and for all forever defeated and dethroned and demoralized our enemy. One translation says, he paralyzed him and rendered him powerless. That is, a, that is a, by the way, that's not a good translation, but we'll go, let's just go with it. But the reference that that has to do with what I just referred to a while ago. It says, on the cross he did these things. Not in hell that he did these things. But thank God, he did not even stop there. He went down and ripped the keys of death and hell out of Satan's hands and he grabbed Satan by the nap of the neck and he began to slowly drag him down through the corridors of hell. All beat up and bruised because he wanted to make sure that every single demon saw that very clearly that Jesus was indeed the undisputed champion of all time. And hit, hit the Rocky soundtrack. 
I know you want to hear the eye of the tiger right there, right? Incredible! Incredible heresy! Incredible the number of, I'm going to just say it, the number of legitimate Christian pastors that will sit on the same place with Joel Osteen and act like he has a legitimate ministry. This is a man that could not say on TV whether or not Jesus was the only way to salvation. He says, I'm not, theolo- I'm not a theologian enough to, to make that declaration. Well, then shut your mouth and get out of the pulpit. Because the Bible makes that statement. Jesus is, the, I'll tell you, Jesus is the only way to salvation. They're not going to have the cameras here, but Jesus is the only way to salvation. The only way. And then any other approach to eternity will lead a person to eternity in hell. It's very simple. You know, you get on, they get on TV, well, I don't know, you know. The man asks you a question, Joel, tell him. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Well, what about the Jewish people? Yes, they need Jesus too. That's what he should have said. Yes, they need Jesus too. What about the Islamic? Yes, they need Jesus too. It's incredible. Okay. Joyce Meyer. Okay. This is where I probably get purses thrown at me, I'm sure. Okay. During that time, he, meaning Jesus, entered hell, where you and I deserve to go legally because of our sin. He paid the price there. She's a heretic. Sorry, ladies. I know you want to say that she has practical teachings that can be applied. Well, what's the basis of her teaching? If you want practical teaching, find a good Bible-based teacher. You like a lady teacher? Well, I think there's a couple fine women teachers. I think Kay Arthur is a wonderful teacher. What's the, what's the other lady? Beth Moore. Kennedy Dean. I mean, we have some wonderful Christian women that have been blessed by God to be great teachers of the Word. You don't have to chase these people. Okay. He paid the price there. No plan was too extreme. Jesus paid on the cross and in hell. God rose up from his throne and said to the demon powers tormenting his sinless son, Let him go. Then the resurrection power of Almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus. He was resurrected from the dead. The first born again man. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But that, that leads right into the next thing. I want you to get two things so far. You have a recreation of Jesus, our precious Savior upon the cross, that they would say took on the very nature of Satan on the cross to die for our sins. It was the Savior with the nature of Satan that died for your sin, according to their theology. I'm telling you, if he did, he couldn't save you. But the cross was not enough. For Jesus was taken to hell and in hell suffered for our sins, according to their theology. So Jesus, now keep the progression going. Takes on the nature of Satan on the cross. Satan has power over him because of who he is now. Satan drags him into hell. Satan torments him in hell. Punishes him in hell. Tries to destroy him in hell. And then as Joyce Meyer said, the power of God rushes through the corridors of hell. And now something is about to happen to Jesus in hell. So that he might rise from the dead and be our Savior. Well, let's read what they say is going to happen. We come to the rebirth in hell theology. Word faith teachers teach that Jesus was born again in hell. 
Here, we, we read, first of all, Creflo Dollar. And you know, I've tried to really spread these out. I can, I can give you quotes of many of these guys over and over again saying the same thing. Creflo Dollar. When you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you became born again. That simply means that your spirit was transformed from a state of spiritual death to life in a split second of time. But have you ever considered that Jesus went through the exact same thing? Often, in the midst of our religious views of him, we forget that he actually, he was actually the first person to ever become born again. Do you understand the impact of that? If you believe he died spiritually, then you believe he must be born again, right? There's a real problem here. (laughs) Only a sinner needs to be born again. Only a sinner needs to be born again. Now, the Bible does say that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. It doesn't say he's the firstborn again man. It says he's a, and all that means is, basically is this, that no one could rise from the dead until Jesus rose from the dead. There are not many resurrections in the Christian church. There's one resurrection. It's called the first resurrection. It's Christ's resurrection. Paul says in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians that each in its own time, but we're all involved in, in Christ's resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. That's true. He was the first one to rise from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, because the resurrection happened, you and I, too, can have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15 says that if there is no resurrection of Christ, then our faith is empty and meaningless and futile. But because there is a resurrection, which, by the way, is so crucial, and even some churches in this town deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then they're denying their own salvation. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that Jesus was born again. And, and, and if you understand John chapter 3, where Jesus actually talks about what it means to be born again, to say that Jesus was born again was to accuse him of being a sinner. And they don't have any problem with that because they actually say he takes on the nature of Satan. All right, we read on. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, Benny Hinn again. My, you know, whoosh. I, I, I know I can't do it like Benny Hinn, I'm sorry. The Holy Ghost is showing, showing me some stuff. I'm getting dizzy. And you know what? I agree with him on that part. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. It's, it's just heavy right now on me. He's referring, he's referring to Jesus in the underworld now. God isn't there, and the Bible says he was begotten. When does the Bible say he was begotten? Not in hell. And the word begotten just means one and only. It didn't mean he become the Son of God. It means the word begotten means the one and only. Okay? Anyways, read on. God isn't there. He is begotten. Do you know that the word, what the word begotten means? Here's what I'm going to guarantee. Benny Hinn does not know what the word means. It means reborn. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It, I just told you what it means. It means one and only. John 3.16, the only begotten Son. He is the one and only Son of God. He's unique of a kind. So again, the saying that as Jesus was born, born again, we must be born again. Again, to go back to what we took last week, he, we're, he expects us to become little Christ or like Christ. Alright, we read on. He said, he said, um, it means reborn. Do you know what, do you want, do you want another shocker? Have you been begotten? So is he. Don't let anyone deceive you. 
Jesus was reborn. You say, what are you talking about? He was reborn. He had to be reborn. If he was not reborn, I could not be reborn. Jesus was born again. If he was not reborn, I would never, I would never be reborn. How can I face Jesus and say, Jesus, you went through everything I've gone through except the new birth? Well, you can just say it. I mean, come on. All right. Charles Capps, bringing a new player into this. He just, he just comes right out and says it. Look what he said. Jesus was born again in the pit of hell. He was the firstborn, the first begotten from the dead. He started the church of the firstborn in the gates of hell. He went down to the gates and started his church there. The church started when Jesus was born again in the gates of hell. All right. All right, let's go on to the last thing. How many of you knew any of this stuff? You have to see what's happening here. And let me just throw this. I just want to throw this out to you. I know, I know you're doing some of the media thing. The media, the media can be used or abused. It can be a good thing or not. One of the things about media ministries is, for the most part, they're not accountable to anybody. That's why the local church becomes very important. We're accountable to each other. I'm accountable to you. You're accountable to me. You know, I don't know how many people have wasted their life and their sustenance sending off to, to media ministry. And, and I'm going to tell you, when you're at the hospital, Benny Hinn won't be there. You lost a loved one, he's not going to be there. He doesn't know you, he can't know you. And God never told us that that's what the church ought to be. Am I saying there's no valid place for media? No, I'm not saying that. There is a valid place. But it needs to be on the, the auspices of the church, the local church, and not based on a personality or a cult movement. And yes, that's what I said. It is a cult movement because the, the personalities become bigger than truth itself. And people follow them and don't care what they say. And these men have said this since, since the late 80s, early, somewhere in the early 80s, to the 90s, to the 2000s, to where we are today. And there are still Christians who listen to them and, 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 and still haven't picked up on this stuff. So we come to the last thing. We'll call this one reincarnation. Word faith teachers teach that since both Jesus and every believer is born again, that every believer is just as much an incarnation as Jesus is. Kenneth Hagin. Every man who is born again is an incarnation and Christianity is a miracle. The believer is as much an incarnation as, as was Jesus of Nazareth. You understand what the incarnation is? God who took on flesh. That's the incarnation. All right, Kenneth Copeland. I think I've used this one before. You just have to read it again. It says, the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, Son, realize this. Now follow me in this and don't let your tradition trip you up. He said, think this way. A twice-born man whipped Satan in his own domain. So in all this you see, Jesus is in hell. He's born again. He's in hell and he whips Satan in hell. And look at what he says. He says, and I threw my Bible down like that. I said, what? He said, a born-again man defeated Satan. The firstborn of many brethren defeated him. He said, you are the very image, the very copy of that one. I said, goodness gracious sakes alive. 
And I began to see what had gone on in there. And I said, well now, you don't mean, you couldn't dare mean that I could have done the same thing. He said, meaning God said, oh yeah, if you had had the knowledge of the word that he, that he did, you could have done the same thing because you're a reborn man too. Huh? Yeah. You understand? When I say atonement atrocities, I mean it. If this is someone's gospel, we've got a lot of people that are in trouble. And here's what I know to be true. Religious-minded people are the hardest people to reach. Whatever religion we're talking about. And if they believe this version of the gospel and put their trust in this version of the gospel... They're going to be very difficult to reach because they think they're okay. Their final authority has told them that they're okay. Unfortunately, if this is their version of the gospel, they're as lost as they can be. This is not the gospel that saves, according to the Apostle Paul. This is not what the atonement is about, according to the Apostle Paul. Well, let's break that down. Let's, let's, let me give you some biblical answers to some of this. I wrote them on your outline there. You should have them. Let's go on very quickly. First, Jesus was a sin offering. It's the whole point of all the Old Testament ritual. What did the Lamb have to be? What did the Lamb have to be? Pure, perfect, without blemish, no broken bones, perfect, right? Why? Let me ask you this. When they sacrificed that lamb in the Old Testament times as a representation of the ultimate sacrifice who was going to come, did, when they sacrificed him, before they sacrificed him, did he automatically become broken, disease-filled, blemished, unworthy? No. They sacrificed him as the, the lamb, as perfect, spotless, unbroken bones, clean, without disease. Why? Because God only would accept a sacrifice that was pure and right and acceptable. That's true with Jesus. Jesus didn't become Satan's nature. He didn't become sin on the cross. He bore our sin upon the cross. He took our sin upon the cross. He received the punishment for our sin upon the cross. But it was a perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous, holy Lamb of God. Who died upon that cross? Maxine. I'm sorry. I am having trouble with that verse and comparing that with Second Corinthians um, uh, 21, where it says God. 521. Yeah, 521. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right. I know you would have trouble, that's why I give that to you. The translation is not a good translation. I'm just going to say it. The term there speaks of the sin offering or the sin bearer. The Jewish mind would have known that. We Gentiles have trouble with that because we don't, we don't understand that concept. And that's why I'm going back to the Old Testament concept. The shadow of the Christ to come was given to us in the Old Testament. And the requirement of the sacrifice was it had to be unblemished, it had to be pure, it had to be... The lamb, listen, in the Old Testament the lamb did not become sin... But the sin of the people was placed upon the head of the lamb. And the lamb was sacrificed. And Jesus is, what, what did John say? John spoke it real quick. John the Baptist, he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that, that, that word there, Maxine, 
is better translated, not just with the word sin, but sin bearer or sin offering. And again, the Jewish mindset would have known that he was referring back to the Old Testament that, that talked about that. Ken? In other words, the sin of all mankind was placed upon him. But he didn't literally turn into sin. Yeah. Okay? So our first point that we understand here, hopefully, and it's good, good for clarification, that Jesus is the sin offering. He did not take on the nature of Satan. And you, here's what you just have to know. That's why I go back to the Old Testament. Sin cannot attend, uh, atone for sin. Sin cannot atone for sin. Only righteousness only the righteous uh, sacrifice would be acceptable to God. But doesn't that say that, I mean, here, with the, the, uh, to be sin, God, go over that again. How could God, be, you know... He didn't become sin. That's my point. He became the sin bearer. Right. He became the representation of sin right. in the sense that he took our sin upon him and God punished him for our sin. That's what Paul's trying to say. He took our sin upon himself. But this, couldn't you be confused by the way that Yes, you can, and that's why that's why it's good to, you know. Yeah, Peter says he bore our sins on the cross. Right. That's more accurate. The point he said to Peter said that that he bore our sins upon the cross, and he did. Okay. Here's what Scripture interprets Scripture. When you have a hard Scripture, you go back to the to the to the easier Scripture. And, and there's, there, it's, here's what I want you to get. There's a basic premise to let you know that our translations are a little bit short right there. Have to be. If Jesus became sin, then Jesus could not die for your sin. It's just that simple. God does not accept sin for sin. The, the sacrifice had to be what? Righteous. Holy. Perfect. Remember, you and I are sinners. And all, we can never die for someone else's sin. We can only die in our own sin. But we cannot die for someone else's sin. Jen? Just if you go on at the end of the verse that says we became the righteousness of God, obviously, again, we aren't the righteousness of God. We have righteousness upon us. That's right. It's been imputed to us. It's been imputed to us. In the same way, you can put it this way. As his righteousness has been imputed to us, our sinfulness was imputed to him. Everybody got that? So he died in our place. My sinfulness was given over to him. Your sinfulness was given over to him. And when we receive him, then his righteousness, which I have none in my own, has been imputed to us. Couldn't the Benningham pick up this? Of course, that's what they do. Yeah, of course they do. Of course, yeah. All right, second thing. Nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus went to hell, much less suffer there. Nowhere. Nowhere. Now, Paul does refer to the time that Jesus descended. Okay? And if you remember on the cross, there was another guy, I don't know if he was right or left of Jesus, but he was there on the cross, same time Jesus was. One of the thieves on the cross rejected Christ. Remember? And he mocked Christ. The other one, right on the cross, was convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he came to faith on the cross. It's incredible. You say, well, how do you know he came to faith? Because Jesus said so. That's good enough for me. I don't know if it's good enough for you. Okay? But he came to faith on the cross. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, today you will be with me 
Where? Not in hell, but in paradise. Now, how did Jesus describe... Well, my time is way up. How did Jesus describe the place of the dead prior to the resurrection? Well, you look in the Gospel of Luke and he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that story? Not just merely a parable. He's telling what a story of what is. And he talks about the place of the dead in the Old Testament called Sheol. Not called hell. Now, some of your translation will use the term hell. It's a bad translation. Because it's not hell. It's Sheol. It's the grave or the place of the dead, more literally. How was that place of the dead prior to the resurrection? Well, Jesus described it. One side there was a place called Hades. It was a place of torment. It's where the rich man was. He was in a place of torment. On the other side, it's described as paradise or Abraham's bosom. And remember, Lazarus, when he died, he was in Abraham's bosom. And he was in comfort and he was in peace and he was ministered to. While the rich man was in torment... In Hades. So much so that we, he could actually look over this great chasm and he could see, he saw Lazarus over there and he said, please just let Lazarus. Anybody says, well, hell is not literal or punishment is not literal. Look at what he said. Please just let Lazarus come and take his finger, dip it in the water and just touch my, can you imagine how thirsty you have to be if, if all you really want is just one touch? Let him touch my, my, my tongue on that. Okay? Then finally Jesus said, you know, he says, well, we'll send Lazarus back up. And Jesus said, listen, even if one came from the dead, they won't believe. Okay? He wasn't talking about Lazarus. He was talking about his own resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, he said to the thief, today you'll be with me where? In paradise, the bosom of Abraham. So yes, Jesus, according to Paul, in the book of Ephesians, Jesus descended. But he didn't descend into hell to be punished there, to be tormented, to fight Satan. The fight was over. What does Paul say he did? He led captivity captive, which interesting terminology, but what it really means is he set the captives free. What were they captive, and who were these captives, and what were they captive to? They were Old Testament believers who could not be set free from the punishment of death until Jesus won that victory in his resurrection. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he emptied paradise. So we no longer go to paradise to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So yes, the thief went to paradise. He went there. He was there. He was one of the shortest residents in paradise. Okay? He went there. You know who else was there? John the Baptist was there. You know who else was there? Moses was there. Moses was there. Adam was there. Nebuchadnezzar was there. I mean, we can go around down listing guys that were there. And they were waiting the resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he set the captives free. We don't go to paradise anymore. We go into the very presence of God. But you know what's still there? Hades is still there. Hades is still there. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for something that's called the great white throne judgment. They'll have their day before God. And if you read the book of Revelation, it says... At the end of all things, after the great white throne judgment, those who did not believe in Jesus were cast in the lake of fire. And then it says this. It says, And death and Hades were also cast in the lake of fire. Literally, the lake of fire is eternal hell. Hades is not the eternal hell. It's a place of torment. It's a, pla- it's a, it's a holding tank. By the way, it, 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 it's in this that you might find that some of your Roman Catholic friends get their teachings of purgatory. But there's no purgatory here. It's not a purging place. You're either in the place of the damned or you're in the place, you were in the place of the believers. Okay? So, uh, it does teach that Jesus descended, but he didn't descend into the hell. He went into paradise and he set the captives free. 
So again, that's why I say even the Apostles' Creed is a misnomer. One of, the, one of the statements of the Apostle Creed is that he descended into hell. No, he didn't. He went to paradise. A group, a group in the in the church council. It, it wasn't written by the apostles. It wasn't written. It, it's many, it's many decades, uh, many centuries later. How many? Fourth or fifth century? Pardon me? It, no, it's even past. It's it's like in the four hundred, something like that. Maybe late three hundred, early four hundred, somewhere around there. I don't have the exact date. I think it's early four hundred. But it, but it's a church council. It's not the apostles that wrote it. It's a church council. And they named it the Apostles' Creed. Yes. Yeah. Okay? All right, let's go on to the next thing because I'm, I'm over time, but let me get to this. Jesus, according to the Scripture, is the firstborn of the dead, which simply means he, he rose from the dead, and he had to rise from the dead first in order that anybody else might rise from the dead. And that, that term, firstborn from the dead, refers to his resurrection. Nowhere does the Scripture teach that he was born again. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, what the Scripture teaches is that only sinful men must be born again. That's what the Scripture teaches. Alright? Finally, the Incarnation. Jesus is uniquely, listen, He is uniquely the Incarnation. And when I talk about Jesus being the Incarnation, I always do a capital I. That's just me. He is the Incarnation. He is eternal God who took on the flesh of His own creation, came as a man. What a, what a wonderful thing our Savior did. He set aside the prerogatives of His deity. He, he, he left that place in heaven where He was glorified and honored and worshipped by all the angels. And He come down to this earth, took on the flesh of His own creation among a group of people that would hate Him, reject Him, mock Him, and kill Him. And in the midst of all that, He loved us. He is uniquely the incarnation. Being a Christian does not make you an incarnation. Being a Christian makes you a redeemed, fallen human being. Who at one time was estranged from God and had no hope, but by the power of God and by the finished work of Jesus upon the cross, listen to me, the finished work of Jesus upon the cross, who came in the flesh of his own creation as the incarnation and lived a sinless life, died that, that death upon the cross, carried our sins upon that cross, our sins were imputed to him, was buried and three days later rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death and hell for everybody who put their faith, who put their faith in him. You and I can know redemption. That's the atonement. That's the finished work of Christ. This is all folly. But it's not, it's not funny folly. It's not funny at all. This is dangerous. This is eternal, soul-damning apostasy and heresy. And it has taken on the image of the church of Christ. And it's draped in all the trappings of the legitimate church. And unfortunately, too many professing Christians have become so so spiritually dense that they can hear these things, watch these things, and not have any sense of what it is. Satan would never want us to overcome our sins. Of course. Never. Why would he want to? Yeah. That's what his purpose is. Yeah. All right. We're going to stop there. We're out of time. 
we got a couple more weeks of this. My wife's going to be glad when it's over, aren't you, hon? I took my pills this morning. I think I'm okay. Okay, baloney, okay. They're reading from this Bible. That's what the sadness is. But please remember, I just want to throw this out to you. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus, what did he, what did he use? Now, he misused it, but what did he use? He used the Scripture. Now, by the way, let me just throw this out. I got to throw it out to you real quick. There are two words that are used in the New Testament. They try to tell you that, that they are both, they're different, but they actually are the same. There's Logos and there's Rhema. And they try to different. By the way, most of these, I just got to tell you, most of these guys have doctors from a, from a, from a diploma mill. Unfortunately, Linda, I'm not picking on you, but most of them are former music people. <laughs> they were. I'm serious as I can be. They are. Anybody heard of Mark Sharona? Dr. Mark Sharona? He's a music guy. Benny Hinn was a former music guy. Until he visited the grave of Catherine Coleman and he says that the spirit of Catherine Coleman came into him and told him that he would... It's nuts. It's a cult. Listen, they want you to believe that the rhema word, which is supposedly the spoken word, outdoes the logos, which is the written word. It's, it's that Hebrew word that, that, that uh, Jesse just used. It's baloney. There's no differentiation between them. It's, it's just not, it's not. They don't even know their own Greek. Because they're not Hebrew. They are Greek words. Rhema and, and Logos. And they don't even know their own Greek. Because they've never studied Greek. They read some book that someone said, this is what the Greek means. Be careful people do that. Oh, we have to stop that. All right. When they found out how easy it is for the government to buffalo us, they figured, let's get in the game. <laughs> All right. Yes. Yeah, he was a choir leader. I've kept that in the back of my mind all my ministry. Thank you, Roseanne. I just... Okay. All right. Let's pray together and let's be, uh, let's be dismissed from, from this place here tonight. Okay, Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us your word and your truth and your spirit. And Father, we just pray that you give us a heart of discernment. This is not just about pointing out the faults of others or the, or the, the, the bad teaching of others. But Lord, we're talking about eternal souls and you know that. That's why you told us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all given to the saints. Father, let us stand in your truth. Let us, be, uh, let us do that with integrity and let us do that with a broken heart to, to, even, to even think that there are precious souls that are believing these teachings and trusting in these teachings. Father, help us to open our mouth with the truth and, and, and the message of love that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Tony, I want to say one thing, though. Jesse and I saw a lot of...